You're listening to Radio Influence. You are sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another exciting edition of City Ringside. My name is David Penzer. We are so happy that you are here each and every week, this week especially, to listen to this thing we call a podcast. Hope you enjoyed last week our WrestleMania weekend wrap-up with Mike Freeland. Appreciate Mike's input and uh, uh, lots of interesting stuff uh, at Raw and SmackDown, lots of debuts. Uh, so, uh they, they, after all that, after how much I, I pushed and and uh, and and talked about how uh, much they how great it put uh, Charlotte over, they uh, had her drop the the, the title to uh, Carmella, Money in the Bank thing, and uh, so yeah, you got to keep booking and you can't uh, rest on your laurels, but uh, but some of those things you just make you scratch your head and say, why did you do that? Anyway. Speaking of why did you do that, two weeks ago we previewed the Andre the Giant documentary on HBO. Uh, we had uh, the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase, and Kevin Sullivan come on and tell some Andre stories. And I did get a chance this past week to watch the documentary. Excellent, excellent uh, program. Uh, if you're a wrestling fan, if you're even just a sports fan or, uh, you know, a pop culture fan, uh, a great uh, uh 90 minutes of television. So I, you know, if you haven't watched it already, I know there's people that have watched it like three or four times now. And, uh, I've watched it like twice. It's, it's really, really good. And, uh, great footage in there, great interviews. And, um, but our guys, uh, our experts, our Andre experts, million dollar man and Kevin Sullivan kind of nailed, uh, lots of what was talked about. And, uh, I was impressed. I was taking notes. They kind of nailed, uh, uh, Kevin Sullivan nailed about his, uh, him not liking John Studd because John Studd walked over the top rope and that was Andre's gimmick and Studd being afraid of him. Uh, they also uh, talked about uh, the proportional size of his body. Uh, they had Ric Flair, of all people, <laughs> talking about about that with uh, about Andre's proportionality. So uh, uh, that's like pot calling kettle, but uh, we, we'll move on. Uh, of course, tons of drinking stories and... You heard if you listen to the podcast. If not, I suggest you go back and listen to uh, Ted and, and Kevin telling the stories about traveling with Andre and, and, and the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase, told a story about a uh, crowded elevator in Japan and flatulence. And there was like at least a three-minute segment on this documentary on the brilliance that was Andre the Giant's flatulence. Even lines from Vince McMahon. Vince McMahon putting over the flatulence ability of Andre the Giant. Uh, it was something to be seen. And we got our flatulence story on this very podcast. So if you missed that one, go back a couple of weeks uh, and check it out. And uh, so thank you to our uh, two experts. We're going to get Ted DiBiase on to talk about his career in the weeks and months to come. And uh, just wanted to thank those guys for nailing it really we nailed uh the key points in the andre documentary so uh great great uh uh great show and i appreciate those two guys this week want to bring on uh maybe one of the most humble uh hall of famers that uh ever 
wore that ring and a guy that's done so much in front of the camera, behind the scenes. Uh, he is a good friend, and uh, I think uh, well, you will enjoy his story. And I'm talking about the leader of the Four Horsemen and so much more that he's done in his career. Please welcome to City Ringside, the one and only J.J. Dillon. Ladies and gentlemen, honored this week to have a legend, and that word gets thrown around a lot in this business, but this man is a true legend and a WWE Hall of Famer, uh, the leader of the Four Horsemen, and that's just the uh, tip of the iceberg of what J.J. Dillon has done behind the scenes and in front of the camera, the professional wrestling business. So we're happy that he's here to tell his story. J.J., welcome to City Ringside. I really appreciate it. Uh, happy to be here on. So we're going to go all the way back to, uh, I don't want to date you, but we're going to go all the way back. I want to start at the beginning to uh, 60 years ago, believe it or not. And um, you became the president of the Johnny Valentine, correct me if I'm wrong, fan club. Uh, I'm just wondering, in 1958, with the wrestling business so closed the way it was back through the you know the late 70s, early 80s, uh, how one becomes a, a fan club president of somebody like Johnny Valentine back in, in the late 50s? You know, that's a great question because it really was um, pretty much a closed business. But I started hanging around as a kid, 16 years old, and I think over a period of time and I, I, that you like earned trust and two people that I became close with in that era were the original zebra kid, George Bolas and Johnny Valentine. And I just was enamored of Johnny Valentine. He just, there was something about him. I mean, he, he didn't say a whole lot. He, he accomplished more with his entrance to the ring, just standing in the corner with a, with a look. Um, it just, I was enthralled by it and approached him about, uh, you know, starting a fan club for him. And um, he agreed. We used to have, I was born and raised in Trenton, New Jersey, and we used to have live wrestling once a month. Uh, at the armory, the National Guard Armory in Trenton. And and you could go downstairs, which is where the restrooms were, and <clears throat> uh, like off to the side were where the, the, the wrestlers dressed. And they would then come out and go into a shower area. So they didn't have total privacy. And um, that's how I was able to, to interact you know, it's funny. Um, I, I didn't have this uh, written down as a question, but it's funny when I hear your story. And, you know, we, we know uh, uh, guys like Barry Rose, who uh, is a Florida historian, who, who got to know a lot of the guys when he was young. Uh, he was the president of some fan clubs. And you hear a lot of that. Um, I, I used to hang around all the time, I hung around for about for about 10 years. I guess I was afraid. I guess my deal is I was afraid to say anything to anybody. I just kind of watched from afar. You know, I would hang out the back and at the back of the Sunrise Musical Theater when you guys came, you know, came in and left and, you know, never really asked for autographs or never really, you know, asked to be a fan club president. But uh, I, I guess that um, uh, if you if you were bold enough back in the day to make yourself known and you were respectful, I guess there were some guys that would actually, you know, talk to you and get to know you. I, I think it's true. 
in in life in general, and certainly was true back then. Uh, if you were had a chance of having any kind of a relationship, it's like you have to give respect to get respect. And I I was very respectful even as a young as a young teenager. And John, um, you know, I asked him, and I I even wrote up a letter where. I asked him to give me written permission to start a fan club for him. And then I gave him a questionnaire uh, about his background because this was before the internet, before uh, as much information as as one could currently get. Uh, I I remember I I gave him a thing about, you know, where he started and where he had his first match. And I I don't remember all the questions on the questionnaire, but he, he filled it out and gave it to me. Wow. And... At that time, living in Trenton, New Jersey, a lot of the wrestlers that were working the East Coast circuit, which would go from um, just north of Boston up into northern Maine, all down the East Coast, as far west as Pittsburgh, and as far south then as Washington, D.C. And I, I, again, approached John in a respectful way, and he signed permission for me to have a fan club for him. And I asked if it'd be possible for me to come to his home and, and sit down and have some private time to meet with him. And he agreed to that. Wow. And he, he lived in Wilmington. And as it worked out, um, I had to take a train from Trenton to Wilmington and then a cab to his house. And when I got there, something had happened where John had to go on the road at the last minute and his wife was there and she invited me to come in and said, you know, John was expecting you and he he apologized. And I, I, I probably spent at least an hour there with her just getting the perspective of, uh, of the private life and the family of, of, of someone. But I was, you know, very respectful at that point and for him to invite me to his home and for his wife who was home alone uh, to have somebody knock on the door and say, I'd, and she she knew that John had told her that he had sure. agreed for me to come there. And then he got called away, you know, I don't know if somebody got hurt or whatever the deal was. And so, you know, she could have turned me around and said, John's not here. I apologize. And she invited me in and I spent an hour with her and Got a lot of uh, a lot of additional information. So that's awesome. Yeah. So correct me if I'm wrong. You started refereeing before you actually started wrestling. Is that correct? Yes, I actually was in college. Uh, I graduated from Albright College in Reading, Pennsylvania, and at that time, 1962, so it'd been my second year. <clears throat> Ray Fabiani who was the president of the Philadelphia Lyric Opera Society, which was very eyebrow, was also the the wrestling promoter. No way. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Opera and wrestling. Wow. Opera and wrestling. He was president of the Philadelphia Lyric Opera Society. If if you do a a search into the background of Ray Fabiani. And uh, I just, I hung around and and they used to do a weekly television show on Wednesday nights at the NBC studio on Walnut Street in Philadelphia that was aired on Saturday and it was driven 
to promote the big show once a month, which was at that time was either at convention hall or the Philadelphia arena, uh, depending on which they, they bounced back and forth, I guess, depending on availability of, of the arena. And so I was friends with the guy in Reading where I went to college who would go down every week to the NBC studio in advance and he would get the ring. They had a small studio in the basement. It was like almost, a, it was a movie theater, really, because they there was a screen that they had to raise out of the out of the way and then they had a curtain that opened up and there was enough room on that stage to set a ring that the front of the ring came right to the to the front of the stage and it was uh the seating went up as if uh, it was a movie theater so the person could look over the person in front of him and see the screen and it couldn't have seated more than I don't know, try to remember back but if you said 100 150 people that's probably all that it that it seated and they would have live matches every Wednesday that they would record and would air on that Saturday. So the guy from Reading used to come down and get the, with the ring was stored in the NBC studio. He would get it out of the storage and I would help him set it up on the stage. And then when they actually recorded the show, we each had like a plain white t-shirt and he would go to the one corner and take the ring jacket. I would go to the opposite corner and get the ring jacket. And it was like my, when I was in college, you know, that was my, my, you know, 20 seconds of fame to, to my fraternity brothers to see me. Oh, wow. There I'm sure. Yeah, I'm and, sure. Uh, I mean, it was exciting, but it also uh, enabled me then to, over a period of time, to, uh, you know, to, to make contacts with the, with the guys that came in and, and like I say, to kind of earn their trust. And it just, it just built from that. But that's how, how it all started for me. I was, uh, and what happened was taking the ring jackets uh, every week and being there, the one week that uh, I rode down with a guy from Reading who set the ring up, and we would go down earlier in the day in order to, you know, to have time to get everything out and set up. And a, a, a pretty severe storm front came through, heavy snow. And of course, we were already there. And then some of the wrestlers couldn't get there, but a lot of them lived right across the, the river in New Jersey. And so enough guys were able to get there to be able to go ahead and record the show. But the referees were assigned by the Pennsylvania State Athletic Commission. And no commission referee sh showed up at the studio when it was time to, uh, you know, record the hour show. And it's like, oh, well, we got enough wrestlers to do the show. We don't have a commission referee. What well, are we going to do? I hear, Jerry, Jerry, I hear that moment coming. And they looked at, because this happens almost every edition of this podcast. And I love it because it's just, so let me guess what the, what the, what, and I don't know the answer to this question. So if I'm wrong, I'm going to look like a moron, but uh, so let me guess. So they turned to you because they knew you from taking the ring jackets and said, do you know how to referee? And you said, of course I could referee. Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. they. There you they, go. Ding, ding. We yeah, got, the wrestlers. Yeah. Actually the wrestlers. It was like their suggestion. Well, we, what are we going to do? We don't have a referee. And they all looked at me. And even though I had never refereed, I had been around. And at that point, the referees in Pennsylvania, it was a political thing. 
right. that most of the appointees um, were not wrestling fans. They they would work the arena shows, and I, back in those days, they would get like $100, which was a fortune. And then we're, we're talking about 1962. So $100 in 1962 wow. was worth that much many fold over. So there's people working uh, indies for a hundred bucks. Uh, yeah. You know, this past weekend. So, so the political thing was, uh, you know, guys that uh, really weren't wrestling fans that the wrestlers would have to work around the fact that these guys, I guess were were smart, but they were not wrestling fans. And, they, and especially in the live arena shows where you didn't have, so much heat on television, but in the arena shows where you would work returns and what have you, there was heat. And the other referees, some of which were, you know, up in years sure. uh, that when they were assigned a referee and if there was like a hot finish, it's like all of a sudden, Oh, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm my back. And, and so they knew that, I was there, and, and I used to go even if I wasn't assigned. I didn't get assigned to every show, but I would go as a fan, and I would be there, and heading things for the for the promotion at that time from an office standpoint was either Angelo Savoldi or Arnold Skoland. And at the end of the show, the house shows, the guys would get advances, and he would sit at a desk, and they would sign a, like a ledger, and if I worked the the house show, you know, I would I would get a hundred. That's the going rate was a hundred bucks, and I would go down, even if I wasn't assigned, just to watch the matches because I was a fan. And when I wasn't assigned, either Skoland or Savoldi, whoever was there, would come up and they'd say, "Vince really appreciate." This is Vince Senior. Sure. Really appreciates that you are here in case you're needed. He'd shake my hand and palm me like a $20 bill. Now, doesn't sound like a lot of money, but to a kid in college in 1962, that $20 absolutely <laughs> went a long way. And so that's kind of how it all how it all started for me. And then the big shows once a month, Vince Sr. would come. And I remember him as somebody who was always impeccably dressed, suit and tie a very heavy smoker and he became familiar with me and called me by my first on a first name basis. And when Willie Gilsenberg came over from New Jersey for one of the big shows that, you know, he asked Vince senior, he said, oh, this, who's the guy here that he's, he's not, he's here. He's not refereeing tonight, but I, he's here. And he said, Oh, he's kind of somebody that, that uh, is there for us if we ever need something special. And he said, in fact, he's from New Jersey. And that's how I then refereed one of the shows where he was there. And Willie Gilsenberg came up to me and he said, hey, he says, you're, you're really very good. I said, well, thank you. I mean, a lot. he was then president of what right. was the WWE. And he said, I'd like to get you on the commission for New Jersey. And I said, hey, I... I, you know, if I get assigned, I can, I've got a car and I can make the shots. So now I'm on the Eastern Pennsylvania commission list. And then on the, on the New Jersey list. And then I even asked Vince senior one time, I said, Oh, I've never, that used to tape every week from the Capitol arena in Washington, DC. I've never been, I, you know, I see it on television and 
you know, if I come down there, you know, could I work TV? Yeah, oh, we'd love to have you. So I went, I remember going down there and they had the, their, the wrestling office was in the Franklin Park Hotel. That's where Vince Sr.'s office was. And there was also an office uh, at a hotel up in, I, I think the Holland Hotel up in New York City. But Vince uh, had his office in the Franklin Park and the boys would all come in during the day. And I think that's, they would get advances for the, the shows that they worked. And then every Thursday is when they would get the balance of their money. So everybody came in there and they all, and, and it was, it was like, I wasn't considered an outsider. I could go there and hang around during the day. And it was like, I was a kid in a candy store. <laughs> yeah. No, I remember the moment in WCW where I sort of went from being out, an outsider to somebody that, you know, people trusted and, it, 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 so not, it sort of, just as an aside, it, it sort of coincided with a junkyard dog naming me Walking Man. And so he called me Walking Man and everybody else called me Walking Man because all I did was walk around to get things signed and to run people for interviews and stuff. So it's just amazing how, how somebody, you know, gives you a little credibility and all of a sudden you feel like you kind of belong there and, and you could uh, build that into something. You built it into a, career, to a, a Hall of Fame career. How did you... Uh, how did you transition from referee to professional wrestler? I know uh, it says that you had your first match at the Violent Speedway in New Jersey in 62, but you don't really consider that your first official match. You write on your website uh, that uh, wasn't until 1969 that you uh, wrestled in, on Dayton, Ohio television that you considered your debut. So why the, the six-year gap and what did you do for those six years? Well, there was, there was a, a local wrestler, a Puerto Rican boy, who was from, I think he was from Vineland or had moved from Puerto Rico and lived in Vineland. And they wanted him to be on some of the cards, especially when they ran a couple spot shows. I'm looking at a, at a poster that I have from an outdoor show in Vineland, which is, was at the Vineland Speedway. They, they put the, the, the uh, ring on the dirt part uh, uh, in front of the grandstand. And there was a guy who I, one of the, one of the other referees had a wrestling, had a gym that he like a so-called wrestling school too, even though he, I certainly wasn't an accomplished wrestler, but I used to go up there and Juan Rodriguez would come over from New, from New Jersey to the, to the uh, to the gym, and the ring was not a, a true elevated ring. It was a it was a ring on the floor with sandbags to hold the post in place, and you couldn't work the ropes because the whole thing would have collapsed. <laughs> but it, it was it, you were actually in a ring, so. I used to go down there and work out with him. And he then, when the local promoter in Vineland was doing a spot show, he asked Juan, he said, I, I want to put you on the card. And it was, in other words, it was an added match sure. over, over the, the book card. And then he said, you need an opponent. And he said, well, I got a guy that I work out with in the, in the, in the, uh, in the gym who lives in Trenton. And he said, well, get a hold of him and then hook me up. And so we worked the card in the Violent Speedway. And I think I actually worked there twice. They, they came twice that summer. 
and like the main event, because there was a lot of migrant workers down there. New Jersey had had a big uh, thing for for produce, and in the summer months, there were a lot of uh, Puerto Rican migrants who come there to work the uh, work the fields, and so that he wanted this local guy Juan to hopefully be a draw for the local people. He needed somebody to work with, which was an add-on match. So that's how, how it happened. And I'm looking at a card from Wednesday, July 11th. I can't look at the year. I think it was 62. But the main event was Miguel Perez against Hunschmidt. And then Eugene and Tomas Marin, uh, Puerto Ricans, against Skull Murphy and Danny McShane. Pete Sanchez was on the card, and then Juan Rodriguez. I, I used the name because I was such a huge fan of Johnny Valentine and had his fan club. I used the name, which is on the poster, of Jim Valence, V-A-L-E-N-C-E. And that was uh, one, of my, one of my first matches, and we were an add-on match. Uh, they didn't even have a dressing room at the, at the track. They used a, a motel to change. And so my first two matches were uh, at the Violent Speedway. And then when they had a return show, we basically had a return match. And that's kind of how it all started with me. And then I was, like I say, a, a referee. What happened was at the, at the weekly tapings then, meanwhile, there was one week where that snowstorm, snowstorm came in. And one, none of the commission referees, they had enough guys showed up to do the hour TV, but no commission referee. And the guys all looked around and they were familiar with me. And they just said, you, you can referee, can't you? Sure. They threw me a striped shirt and I ended up refereeing the whole hour because I was the only one there. And I knew instinctively, because I'd been a fan all those years, what to do, how to position myself. And the only instructions that they gave me was because the ring was on this small stage and they had a hard camera to the back and then a camera. Uh, you know, like a, a roving other two camera shot. Right. And they told me, do not walk to the front of the ring where you walk between the hard camera and what's going on in the ring. In other words, you move around three sides of the ring. You can go back and forth as much as you want. I don't want to see your butt right. go across the hard camera shot. And so I just knew instinctively what to do and ended up refereeing the whole hour. And then, you know, they said, wow, you know, you're very good. And I said, I thank you, but I instinctively knew what to do. And they said, we want to get you on the commission list here. And that's how, how, how it all started with me. And then I was refereeing. I actually refereed for, for eight years while I. Oh, wow. I didn't, I, I didn't college, know that. Yeah. While I was in college, I graduated from college. My dream was to become a wrestler and it ended up, I, I taught school for a year. I, I just, I was conflicted on on what to do chasing my dream that I want my whole thing was to be a wrestler I went to college to get a degree because George Bolas the original zebra kid an old timer said I asked him one time uh, when I was down in Philly and I said well, I want what and I'm sure every wrestler has been asked this a jillion times I want to be a wrestler can you give me any advice and he told me I can there are two things he said number one he said, get your education first. He said, because this can be a very cruel business. It can be a very, it's a physical business. You, you, you're subject to possibly getting hurt. Something could be career ending. So if you have your degree, 
in your back pocket. That's always there for you to fall back on. And then secondly, in the process of getting your degree, make sure that you master the fundamentals of amateur wrestling. And you may say, well, what does amateur wrestling have? It has a whole lot more to do with it than you think, because if you have the, if you have been an amateur wrestler, a lot of the things that you can do will make you a better professional. Doesn't mean that you have to have that. It just is like more tools in your toolkit. And, and so that's what I did. I went to college with the idea that <laughs> I wanted to get a degree. Went out for the rest of the, the, they didn't have amateur wrestling in New Jersey in high school when I went through there for, for whatever reason, I don't know. So I had never seen an amateur match until I went to college. And I went out after that second year with that advice and went out for the wrestling team. And I wasn't very good because I hadn't wrestled as an amateur, but the other guys, especially Pennsylvania has got strong amateur competition all throughout the state. But I was anxious to learn and humble. So the other, even the other guys wanted to help me because they realized that I knew nothing but was there because I wanted to learn. And so that, that experience for those two years really, really, you know, served me well. And after I graduated, you know, I wanted to break into the business, but I, I had a child. I got married a month out of college. And my first child, my, my daughter, Pam, was born, you know, a couple of months after that. So it's like, oh, here's this great plan I had in life where I'm going to be a wrestler and travel the world. And the reality had set in where all of a sudden, hey, I finished college, but I'm married and I'm responsible for this child. And I got I to gotta get my act together. So I, I taught school for a year. I did different things, again, with a thought in mind that my dream was still to to pursue wrestling. And Bruno Sammartino was the champion. It was the beginning of, uh, in 1962, he became champion. And it became the beginning of a lifelong friendship with Bruno Sammartino, who I have so much respect for because he showed me kindness at a time when there wasn't anything that I could do for him. In other words, it wasn't because he just, that's because that's his nature. Sure. And he recognized people that loved the business and were humble. And he, he helped me in, in, in many ways and has been a friend since 1962. So you can add up the years. It's a, a friendship, 50, 60 years. But there were different guys that came in to challenge Bruno, who was the champion for about eight years. And one of the people that came in for a series of matches was the original Sheik from Detroit, Eddie Farhat. Right. And in the dressing room one night, just making casual conversation, I said, you know, uh, you know, I've, I've been a referee, but really my dream was to be a wrestler. And, you know, it's just how things go in life. And he said, well, that's still what you want to do? I said, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, it's like, how do you get that first chance? And he said, well, I promote in Michigan and Ohio. And at that point, my father, who worked for General Motors, had been transferred from the General Motors plant in Trenton, where I was born and raised, to Detroit. My mother, mother and father had moved to Royal Oak, Michigan. And I said, well, my father and mother live in, in Michigan. So I would have a place to, I could go visit them and a place to stay. He said, you, if you come out and I'll give you a chance to put on the tights and we'll just see what you can do. Wow. Yeah. So. Everything happens uh, for a reason, I, huh? 
oh, I had like a four-day weekend for holiday. And I was going to drive. I drove to Detroit to visit with my parents. And a couple weeks in advance, I called Sheik. And I said, I'm coming to Detroit. I'm still working, but I have the, a long weekend. I'm going to come visit with my parents. And he said, okay, I will book you. And it, it ended up he booked me in to do TV appearances. The first one was in, in uh, um, uh, Dayton. Dayton, Ohio, yes. And on a Friday night, and then there was a couple guys there, a guy named Johnny Carr, who used to go, he said, well, the other thing was then Sunday, I was going to work their TVs up in Wall Lake, Michigan. And there was a guy there, and he said, well, what do you, I'm, I'm here visiting my parents. I said, I'm going to work a couple of TV shots from Sunday. So what are you doing tomorrow? I said, I'm not, I'm not doing anything. Just, and he said, well, we go to Pittsburgh and we work TV for, for Pittsburgh. And he said, they're always looking for somebody. And I said, well, if I can hook up with you, I got, I'm, yes, I'll go. So I jumped in the car with them on Saturday, went to Pittsburgh. And of course I knew Bruno from all those years right. as a referee. And so a guy, an old timer named Ace Freeman and another guy named Rudy Miller, an older man, ran the office that Bruno had a, a little mini office where he would run weekends around Detroit, around, around Pittsburgh. So I went and my first actual, my first match was on that Friday in Dayton, Ohio. And it was a tag match with me and a guy, I think a guy named Ron Sanders against the Hells Angels, Golden Boy Dupre and uh, uh, can't think of his partner's name on that Friday. And so my first single match then was the next day at the Channel 11 studio up of the hill in Pittsburgh. And I worked TV and was my first ever single match. And my opponent was Killer Kowalski. Wow. And uh, I am so proud of that fact that my first match, single match of my career was with Killer Kowalski. And I remember that as I reflect back, I've said many times that I thought it was the closest I ever came in my life to think that I was, that I might die in the ring. <laughs> oh, it, wasn't, it wasn't because he was uh, careless. He certainly wasn't. He was, I would, in today's vernacular, he was solid, but he didn't, he didn't hurt you. But if he stomped you, it would go, Ooh, <laughs> knock the wind out of you. But he didn't like, it wasn't like he's going to break a rib or he, he just was, it just, Walter was just solid. And so I remember working the TV match and I survived it. And I thought, wow, you know, when I, when whatever my journey takes me from here on out, I'll be able to, to honestly say that my first ever single match as a professional was against Walter Killer Kowalski. Wow. So 19, not a lot of people say that. No, no, not at all. 1971, you finally, uh, uh, hit your first full-time territory, which was Charlotte, uh, Mid-Atlantic. Uh, how was that feeling that you finally made it? You know, how, how that, that, you know, you had, we're, we're talking about now, uh, you know, when 1958, when you uh, were Johnny Valentine's uh, fan club president to 1971. So you've now been around this for more than a decade. How did, how yeah, did that, and, how did that and feel? And I was a referee during a referee with holding a job after I got out of college. During all that period of time, 
and then had a chance to be in the ring because of the conversation with the Sheik. Sure. But then it was back to the real, real world where I'm back at my job and refereeing on, on the weekends. And I became, I was, the company that I worked for was uh, a trucking company. And one of their, the place that I was assigned to was in Youngstown, Ohio, or Niles, Ohio. Niles, Warren, Ohio, right by Youngstown, about 90 miles out of Pittsburgh. So it worked out good because I could go into Pittsburgh and work TV, and then they would run house shows on the weekends. And because of my friendship with Bruno, I was booked just about every weekend. So that was my first chance to get some regular, um, you know, regular work, which is really, it's like anything else. You need that experience. And, and that reminds me that I, I would like to, to dedicate it to uh, John L. Sullivan, who, who, uh, who was from Pittsburgh. He was a friend of Bruno Sammartino and Dominic Danucci, who trained him and had a lot of matches with him real early in my career. And, uh, he was killed this week uh, in, in, a, in a vehicle accident. Yeah, Seventy-one John, years old. Johnny Valiant. Johnny Valiant. Yep. Yeah. yeah God knew bless him, him. Knew him well. Yeah. Really, really saddened, you know, by that news. But being around Pittsburgh, I met Jim Grabmeyer, who was from Springfield, Ohio. And Grabmeyer used to work around home for the Sheik and for Bruno uh, during the winter months, and in the summer he would go to Charlotte and back then Jim Crockett senior was, was living and he, they would, would run additional shows during the summer. They would do outshore shows and ballparks and they would increase the roster. So I get a phone call one day and it's Jim Grabmeyer. And he said, I, I just got down here to Charlotte. He said, they're, they're short on talent. They're really hurting for people. And I told him about you and that you had this dream. And he said, Based on just his, that he had a picture of me, and he said, just based on his recommendation, they were willing to book me sight unseen. Wow. And he said, the only thing is, I've been a heel. And he said, the only thing is, they're, they're short, they need a baby face. I said, I don't care. I can do whatever. I can be either. So this was like on a Saturday. And they said, well, God, he said, they want you here Monday. I said, all right, I'll be there. You'll start in Charlotte Park Center on Monday. I, I left my job. I had never been further south than Richmond, Virginia in my life, being a New Jersey boy. And I drove my car straight through to Charlotte, stayed at the YMCA, and showed up at the office, which was 1111 East Moorhead Street, met Mr. Crockett. And when I got to the Park Center that night, my first single match in what I considered to be booked in a regular territory, was against Gene Anderson. One of the best. One of the best. And they, they came over, and Angelo Martinelli was a referee, and uh, there was another guy whose name escapes me. But, you know, the, the baby faces were at one end of the building. The heels were at the other end of the building. And they came back, and I remember they said, you know, we're because they didn't know, sight unseen. Sure. Just other than the the reference from from Jim Grabmeyer, and they said, "Well, we you know we're looking for about six eight minutes." I, okay. So I went out there, and it ended up the the and name escapes me, but kept me in the ring for ah sixteen eighteen minutes, and it's like all of a sudden he realized that I was. <laughs> 
even though I had no reputation, nobody knew who I was. He he put me through the paces just to see what I could do. Gene Anderson. And then, That's Gene Anderson, correct? Gene Anderson, yes. Yeah. And Gene Anderson kept me out there. And basically, you know, I came back to the dressing room and the referee came over and said, wow, he said, uh, you did a hell of a job. And he said, Gene Anderson, of all people, has nothing but tremendous high praise for you. And that was how it all started for me. And I ended up staying there it was over two years. I remember seeing Mr. Crockett and then I had, I got to meet Leo Burke and the, the guys, the Cormier family would come down from the Maritimes, which they had their little territory up there in the winter, in the, in the uh, summer months. And then when they ran hockey arenas. So when the ice came down, they would then come to Charlotte and work Charlotte for, uh, uh, for the winter months and then go back up there and it was a summer territory. So Leo Burke, the beast, and they, saw me work and they said, you know, they, they wanted me to go up there. Freddie Sweet Tan was a local guy up there. And every year they would give him a fresh uh, tag team partner. So he had a fresh look every year. And they, they booked me to go up there for the summer. I would be up there the whole summer as Freddie Sweet Tan's partner. And I want to say, um, they're, they're single. They, every, every year they would have a single guy that they, they pushed on top. It was the Stomper, Archie Goldie one year. It was, uh, they had all big guys. And so I was the tag, I was penciled in to be Freddie Sweetan's tag partner. And about two weeks before the start of the season, they were going to showcase, I want to say Larry Zabisco or whoever it was, ended up getting a chance for a starting date with Vince Sr. in New York. And they didn't want to tell him, well, you know, we're, you're, you're our top guy for the summer. And, you know, they, they, you, you just couldn't do that. They had to, on short notice, lose their top heel for the, for the summer. And I remember with Leo Burke, I said, Leo, I said, I'm coming up anyway. I said, you've had all these monster heels, Archie Goldie to uh, Killer Carl Krupp the year before. And I said, I don't have that size, but I said, I'm a cocky wrestling heel that my interviews are a big part of my thing. And I said, I'm already coming up anyway. So he said, Hmm, let me mention that to, to, uh, to Rudy Kay. And, you know, he said, I mentioned to Rudy and Rudy said, eh, you know, it's okay. He was, and then the next day Rudy called back and said, you know, the more I thought about it to go and change the pattern of the big monster heel for the summer to be showcased, to have a guy that that's a wrestling heel and can interview. And they said, we're going to give you the chance. And that's how I got my break in the business. Wow. I went to the Maritimes for the summer, figured in for the main, they were going to get me over, which they did. And then it was up to me to carry the ball. And I, I went from making my first year in the business. I made, I averaged like $270 a week, which in 1962 was a lot more than what that amount would be today. My second year in the business in Charlotte, I made $370, $100 a week more average. And I went up to the Canadian Maritimes on top and I averaged over $1,000 a week for, I think, just a week, a week or two short of six months. And in the meantime, Dory Funk had been the world champion, came through defending the title in Charlotte. And, you know, he would come in for a week or two. And... 
you know, he told me when he says, I, you have to, I have to be careful because I can't be coming in to defend the title here and then seeing somebody and, and steal them for, for our territory in Amarillo. And I said, well, I would never say anything. And then he said, we're really interested in you. And then at a big show in Greensboro, Terry Funk came in with Dory Sr., the only time I ever met Sr., and they were in a tag match under Dory fending the title and had me come down to Greensboro early and go by the hotel. And so I met Terry Funk for the first time and met Dory Sr. for the only time. And they said, we, we want you when you're done here to come to Amarillo, that you will do really well. We will give you a top spot. And we booked Japan with the giant Baba. And so you're assured of uh, at least one, if not two trips to Japan, which is, again, one of my dreams was to go to Japan. Now I'm being told, come to Amarillo, work for the Funks in a main event spot and, and be assured of uh, at least one tour of Japan. Yeah. It's, like, mean, it's, it's like, like it's happening. <laughs> it's happening. So but, I mean, that's what happened. Uh, it's interesting to talk about Halifax, the, the, that territory, because that's where my wife's from. And, uh, uh, and so uh, while she was never a big fan, um, her gra- I'm sure her grandfather was at the, in the front row in, uh, in, in Halifax yelling at you when you were up there in, in the early 70s. But uh, somehow by marriage, I I'm, was or, or not still am, but I was related to a guy named Bobby Bass. Uh, Bobby Bass, yes. Yeah, yeah like because my, my my wife's uh, mom has uh, like eighteen brothers and sisters, something crazy, thirteen. So one of them married Bobby Bass years ago. So wow. it's, it's uh, you know nobody ever really talks about that territory, but you know yeah. I got married in I, I got married in St. John, New Brunswick, and and her, I, I worked St. John, yeah, sure, you yeah, know, and I lived in Moncton, and we used to go as far as the tip of uh, uh, of Nova Scotia to. Uh, where the ferries to Newfoundland went uh, sure. in North Sydney. And that was a 300 mile trip. Of course it was trans Canada highway, but still we had some long trips, but that's where I got my break in the business. And so I have incredible fond memories of the, of the Maritimes and going over on the ferry to, to uh, Prince Edward Island. And in the summertime with the, uh, they would during lobster season, you know, you could stop by the side of the road and they'd have stands where they cook the lobster and you could sit at a picnic table and sure. crack fresh lobster. And, oh, it was like, it's a be- I'm getting my break in the business yeah. and I'm in heaven. It's a beautiful area. It actually still is. And uh, yeah. uh, so we, we go up and whenever we go up there, we always do the, the, the probably the same tour you did every week when uh, when you're up there. But we do the PEI and all that. But, yeah, I'm sure my I'm sure my wife's grandfather, uh, uh, who, who pretty much raised her, I'm sure he. Uh, yeah, uh, he was in your face a couple of times there in uh, in Halifax. So that's kind yeah, of yeah. Halifax was, at the Forum was the big town, and then the following morning, you would do TV at the uh, TV station in Halifax, and you you did one, you were on TV and you did one general interview that went to on the the uh, the network covered all of the from Moncton all the way out to to the tip of uh, uh, North Sydney. And so when you do, you the, you had the same match for the week and it would go to all the towns starting in Halifax. And when you did TV, you would talk about your issue, which you could work returns and everything. The only thing was you could never mention the town. Right. 
other than being general, say, hey, I don't care if it's in Moncton or if it's in St. John's or if it's in North Sydney or, or there was another town when you came out of Halifax, you would come up to the Trans-Canada and there was a town there that they ran every week on Saturday too. My wife is from uh, Wolfville. I don't know if they had a big enough uh, arena to, uh, to run on a regular basis. It was like a one spot, uh, one traffic light town. And they ended up taking the traffic light out because nobody, <laughs> they didn't need it. Seriously, that's not a, that's not a not lot. Traffic no, seriously. Yeah, but, people, uh, what are they stopping for? There's no traffic. <laughs> but I, I have such fond memories up there and, you know, with lobster and, and actually getting to know people. I, I went out on a lobster boat and where they would catch them and pull in the traps. And then if they, they had to be a certain size to keep. And if it was just undersized, they would keep it and th- throw it in a pot and boil it out there on the boat. And you know, you had to, you couldn't bring it back in. You had to eat it. Right. And of course it was so, so tender. And then going up to, uh, uh, to the ferry, they, they, they had, uh, scallops too. And I went out on a scallop boat off the, the tip of, uh, uh, of North Sydney. Yeah. In other words, when you, when you go someplace like that, you go as a, cause it was like a vacation area during the summer. And, you know, people would come in there and, you know, look at the sites. And one of the most beautiful places in the world was Peggy's Cove. Right. My, and, my wife's favorite place in the world. <laughs> oh my God. All the houses are brightly colored, painted different colors. And I've never seen water so blue that would, you know, the waves would crash. And if I had to pick, the most beautiful place in the world, I would say probably Peggy's Cove. You know, my wife doesn't really listen to this podcast, but she, I'm going to probably get her to listen to this one because yeah. uh, lots of memories. This has nothing to do with wrestling, but uh, since we're on uh, on uh, the air, that area, um, did you ever go whale watching? Um, no. If you ever get a I, chance to go back up that way in the summer and see Peggy's Cove for one more time or something, I'd suggest whale watching. We went a few years ago. And it was one of the coolest experiences I've ever had in my life. I'm, uh, they're just up there, you know, you, you know, like the the mutual yep. commercials, you know, where they're breaching and and, and yes. it's just amazing. So uh, I did that off of, off of Hawaii. There you go. And and went whale watching, and it it is a phenomenal to see these magnificent animals that you know when you see them breach and their tail slaps and and you look at the size, it it. Uh, it's a humbling experience. It really is because I'm looking at the size of the whales. I'm looking at the size of the boat. And I'm thinking yeah. if, if I'm, I said to my wife, I said, uh, what if the whale goes under the boat and pushes the boat? We don't have a chance. And she's like, well, they, they, they just don't do that. And I'm like, well, yeah. I hope. <laughs> but uh, but we're off topic. But, yeah, it's always fun. It's a, it's a beautiful area up there. And uh, and now my wife will want us to go back and the airfare is really expensive from Tampa. So uh, we, we digress. So uh, you, you headed up to Amarillo and uh, I know that, um, that uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that Terry and Dory were both very influential in, in your career. Did you, um, did you get in? Is that where you first got involved in learning how to book? Well, I, when I started in Charlotte, <clears throat> I was months from my 28th birthday. So I wasn't a kid. And so I had a different outlook knowing that, that my career was not going to be as long as a, as an 18 year old that, that, you know, could wrestle. I'm now already 28. 
So if I'm going to have longevity in the profession, I'm going to have to pay attention to the bigger picture. You know, most guys just worried about their own career. I wanted to know about matchmaking, how a TV show was put together, how you book the territory. So I became a student in the business right from the get-go. And when I went to Amarillo, the funks would uh, meet once a week to book the towns, and they would invite me to come sit in. Could I throw out an idea every now and then? Yes, but I was there more just the learning tree. Be a sponge. To be around, to be to a be sponge. around yes, a sponge to be around the funks. And then, of course, my ultimate goal was because of the reputation of of Eddie Graham, who had who had taken and built the career of Jack Briscoe, that after a year in Amarillo, and which was my first two trips to Japan, right at the beginning and at the end of my tour with Giant Baba. Then from there, I went to Florida with Eddie Graham. And you talk about being under the learning tree. Oh, um, I, I've, I've had a, a storybook career. So many of the, of, of the legendary bookers uh, uh, were under the, the learning tree of, uh, of Eddie Graham. It, it's amazing. You know, uh, Bill Watts, Dusty Rhodes, Kevin Sullivan, yourself. I mean, almost everybody that was a major booker, but, uh, you know, like Pat Patterson and, you know, who booked for Vince McMahon, uh, uh, you know, and uh, WWE took off, WWF took off, but somebody under that tree. Uh, Not to interrupt you, but this past weekend, I made an appearance. WrestleMania was in New Orleans, and they had WrestleCon, which was like a, a fan fest. And I made an appearance for two days, had a chance to sit at a table uh, with Barry Windham, who has a kid, had his first professional match with me. And I, he was destined to be one of the great stars of the business. And the table right next to, to where we were sitting was Eric Watts and the big cowboy himself. Bill oh, Watts, wow. I had not seen in years. And how, so it was like, oh, my God, again, a kid in a candy store. How's he doing? He looks great. He's doing good. He, you know, he, he has a walker to get around with. But, uh, and he's a couple years yeah, I'll see, I'm 75, and I think Bill is a couple years younger than me, actually. But you know, the the this business, if you're in it for a long time, and I've been fortunate that uh, I see a lot of guys and walkers and and what have you that uh, the the hard rings in some of the towns. It, I mean, this business, if it, if it's been your life, which it has for me, and I've been one of the lucky ones that. I've I've been blessed with good health, but it was so good to see Bill. And I, I can't remember when the last time was that I saw him. And then when I left to fly back on Saturday, uh, Eric had a Eric Watts had a flight, and whoever took us, uh, it was like a thirty minute drive from New Orleans out to the airport. And I rode with uh, with Eric, and on and he told me I I told him you know what a great mind his father was and kind of it was I, I didn't pay homage to Bill Watts just because his son was in the car with me, but because he was one of the movers and shakers in our business when I broke in. Absolutely. I told him, I said that it was to be here and just to be around your father, uh, one of the true great minds in the business and a great performer in ring drew a lot of money. And he turned around and he said, God, he, he like got emotional because he said, I, I live with my father and I have respect for him and I, I know about his history, but 
he said to have somebody of your, you know, he says, of your stature, speak so highly of my father. He said, oh, you know, I, I can't tell you how much that means to me. And, and I, I, I said, I just have been lucky. Over the years, I've been around some of the great, from Eddie Graham to, like you mentioned, Dusty and Bill Watts and all these guys. I, I, I've been around some of the greatest minds in the business and Pat Patterson. And I've been a sponge right from day one. Whatever knowledge I have is an accumulation of being around the great, some, some of the greatest minds in our history of our business. And that's what you have to do, sponge it up. I'm curious if, if you guys discussed at all Eric's brief career because he was really put in a no-win situation uh, when, he, when he got in the business. Yeah, well, I, I, I said I understand, and, and there's been other, like Mike Graham. Mike Graham, if he was 10 inches taller, could have been, he could have been one of the greatest champions in the history of our business. But God didn't give him that, that extra 10 inches. But in terms of physical toughness, he was a power lifter. And in the ring, he could do anything. He was a guy that if you, if you underestimate what he could do and, and wanted to play games with him, he, he could tie you in knots. Yeah. And, and you know, he was... He was that era around when Dick Slater and some of the really, uh, you know, tough guys in our business. And uh, Mike was, uh, you know, he was a student, too. He was around his father, and he he absorbed a lot of that knowledge, too. Yeah. He, great, he had a great mind. Great baby face. And, you know, some of, I look back as a kid, some of the best matches I saw were uh, uh, him and Steve Kern teaming up against uh, either uh, Saito and Mr. Sato or... Or even they had a brief like kind of uh, feud with Jack and Jerry Briscoe, some of the classic stuff. But uh, but yeah, Mike, 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 I got to know Mike pretty well. And uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, the thing with let, let me, I want to send a shout out to uh, Marvin Ward, who was uh, the owner of Awesome Wrestling, and he he I first met him back in February when I worked an independent show in Waynesboro, and he's the one who brought me down to New Orleans for two days, and uh, really one of the first class promoters that I've that I've ever worked for Marvin Ward I want just to send a shout out to him sure absolutely uh the thing about Eric though was well he just got put in an impossible situation he had you know three weeks training and they threw him out there and he you know started beating Michael Hayes and and Arn Anderson and and Bobby Eaton and and he was the nicest kid in the world and 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 he felt bad you know but uh his dad you know would just you know you know, I, I, you, you have kids, you do strange things when your kids are involved and you're trying to do right by them. And it just, it was a little bit too much too soon. But, uh, well, it, it, being around Eric, it's something that, that, that certainly didn't go to his head. He was, uh, no, great guy, very, very, a great guy and very humble. And, and he was, he, this weekend was exciting to him because he, he lives in his, he sees his father every day. And he said, all of a sudden, I, I know my father as father-son relationship. I know what his, uh, you know, what he accomplished in, in the business. But he said, this was really the first weekend where we were away from home. And here I am sitting at a table, Barry Windham next to me. And I look over and there's Eric and Bill and everybody that came by. I mean, Shawn Michaels was there. Bret Hart was there. Everybody that you can imagine came by, and all of them stopped to pay homage to Bill Watts. And I said, your father 
your father was one of the icons in our business. Sure. And I said, hey, it's exciting for me just to be here in his presence. And of course, you know, that meant a lot to him to have somebody, uh, you know, feel that way about his yeah. father. It's amazing to me. You know, every time I'm, uh, you know, not often, but when I'm around you or I talk to you, we've been involved in, uh, in, a, in a fan fest that I do here with uh, another uh, Barry Rose a couple times a year that I've mentioned uh, CWF Fan Fest. And, uh, but whenever I'm around you and, and you remind me of this every time or talk to you, it's amazing because after all this, all the success that you've had in front of the camera, behind the scenes with the horsemen, as the talent relations, you know, head of, uh, you know, uh, two, off, two major offices, you're still like one of the biggest fans that I've ever met. <laughs> and it's so oh, cool. Absolutely. It's so cool. You know, your market. Here you are. You're JJ Dillon and you're you got, you know, uh, you know, two thousand people at WrestleCon marking out for you and you're sitting there marking out for Bill Watts. I just love it. It's great. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's and just I, the, that's the kind of guy you are, man. It's just awesome. I have two I have two Hall of Fame rings and I I, I mentioned that when I broke into the business, Hall of Fame to me was baseball in Cooperstown. Right. And to think that I was inducted in 2012 with the Horsemen in the WWE Hall of Fame in Miami, which was one of the proudest moments of my career. And then the following year, there is a legitimate pro wrestling Hall of Fame where they have a committee that prepares a ballot each year. And the ballot goes to uh, a group of wrestlers, a group of reporters, a group of historians, and they actually have a physical vote about who's going in. And the following year, I was voted in by the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, and I look down sometimes and I think, wow, the one ring, I, which the WWE ring is the first one that everybody looks at, and I realize that, uh, you know, Vince McMahon, I guess, decides who he's going to induct and not induct, but the other one was, uh, I went through a legitimate process, so I've had the best of both worlds, and I, I just... I look at the, as a 16-year-old kid that fell in love with this business. I got pictures up on my wall here when I was that age with Johnny Valentine and with George Bolas, the zebra kid. And I, I, I look and tell everybody straight to their face that I'm the luckiest guy in the, in the world because I, nobody loved the business more than I did, was willing to work harder than I was and persevere because this business, and you know, you're going to have a lot more failures and disappointments than you are successful moments. Yes, sir. And it's easy along the way to get discouraged and think, oh, you know, this is not worth, you know, the disappointments. And I persevered through all of that. And now all these years later, I've, I've got two Hall of Fame rings. And it's not because I'm the most talented guy in the world. It's because the fans bought the tickets and, and put me where, where I am in a position to have success. And I had a lot of help from a lot of people on the way. You mentioned the Pat Patterson's and the Eddie Graham's and to be around the Dick Murdoch's of the world. And, uh, it's just, I, I look back on the career. I've had 3,200 professional matches and I, I, I'm still a student in the business, still learning and still love this profession. And it's given me everything that I have. And I, I never look at those two Hall of Fame rings and think that there's something that I, I deserve. It's just that I've been very fortunate and thankful for all the, the people that supported me and helped me. And, and it's the fans. They're the ones that are the judge and jury that they bought the tickets. If you don't have something that they think is worth 
putting the money down to buy a ticket to see you. And again, it's not, I'm not the only one, but you know, back in Amro and Florida, places where I had a chance to work on top, then I guess maybe you could say, uh, you know, a little bit more pressure was on me to, uh, to, you know, to pay my way to, you don't want to be on top and have a disappointing house yeah. because the guys underneath are going to get paid according to what it draws. So I, I, I've been the luckiest guy in the face of the world. So your first book, uh, official booking job, was that in the Kansas City Territory in the early 80s? Yes. And my dream was to get to Florida and to be around Eddie Graham. And I, from the Maritimes in Canada, I went to, went to, uh, went to Amarillo. And from Amarillo, I went to Japan two tours. And I was hoping to go into Florida. And I, I called Eddie Graham before I left for the six-week tour of uh, of Japan with Giant Baba, and I and he said, and right then uh, Jody Hamilton, the assassin, was his his booker at the time, and he said Jody's doing a good job, and he said I'm not sure, you know, you get back from uh, Japan, give me a call. So I'm like excited to get back from Japan. I worked for a week. I, I always wanted to work uh, Calgary and go to the towns up there and to go to the dungeon and the, and the, the big house on the hill was because sure. Stu and Helen were still living. And uh, I, my, my career wouldn't have been complete without working that territory for a week and, and being around Stu Hart with all the Stu Hart stories. But I called Eddie when I got back. And Eddie said, Jody's here. He's doing a good job. And he said, I, I want to try and help you. And he said, any experience that you could get doing booking? And he said, I have a friend who needs help. And I would appreciate it if you would call him and be open to going there and just getting experience with a thought in mind that eventually I want to bring you here to Florida. And he had me call Bob Geigel in Kansas City. Now a lot of guys, oh man, Kansas City territory, you know, what wasn't kind of a lot money? of it wasn't a lot of money there. Yeah, wasn't a lot of money. And I said, Eddie, I appreciate that. I will call Bob Geigel, and I called Bob Geigel, and he was he was thrilled that Eddie had referenced me there. And I went there, and I was uh, I, I worked a little over a year as a booker. Pat O'Connor was there. Bob Geigel was. I looked at Bob Guy. I only met Dory Funk Sr. one time. And that's when I was in the Carolinas. And Dory Funk had a big sh title defense in Greensboro. And they, uh, Dory, Dory Sr. and Terry Funk came in as a tag team underneath card. And Dory said, I want you to come down early. I want to introduce you to my father and to my brother. And I, I want, I said, I got to be careful because I can't be stealing talent. But when, you, when you're done here, we, I want you to, I want them to meet you and I want you to come to Amarillo and you will do well in Amarillo. You perfect fit. You know, we got Murdoch there and Ricky Romero and just, you know, the, the trips are, you know, okay. Some of the trips, but he said, you're going to get to go to Japan. And so I went down early and went by and I met Dory Funk senior and Terry Funk for the first time. And of course, you know, I, I've heard all the stories. I'm in awe of both of them. And the significance of that is, I said, well, I'm, I'm already committed to go to the Maritimes for the summer. And when it's over, I would love to come to Amarillo and work for you. 
So basically, I had a place to go when I was done the Maritimes. I got a phone call after I'd been there for a month or two. And on a Sunday, they used to get together at the house with Senior in, in, Amar- in Amarillo and move the furniture out of the way. Gordon Nelson was there, and they had some guys, Les Thornton, you know, and they would get down and, and go at it pretty good. And Dory Sr. had a massive heart attack, and Terry took him to the hospital, and he died there. So I thought, wow, I was so glad that I had a chance, even for that one day, to have met Dory Sr. And just it was one of the signature moments of uh, to to met a guy that's one of the icons of our business. So back to Kansas City, you go up there as a favor to learn for Eddie. Uh, it's, yep. your, it's your first official head booking gig. Uh, and you're, you know, I guess as the booker, you're kind of allowed to call in whoever, you know, whoever you want, correct me if I'm wrong, but whoever you want to sort of, you know, be on top and be involved. Uh, who, who do you call or do you just decide to use the guys that are there? Well, for the most part, use the guys that were there. And that's what, what was lesson number one in the learning tree. That most of the guys, and I'm talking about the Bill Watts of the world, the Dusty Rhodes of the world, when they took a booking job, like Dusty, and I, you know, I had, I used to love when Eddie Graham would come into my office and I had a small office and I had a desk and there was like a, uh, like a lounge chair and Eddie would come in and sit down. And that's when I was at my learning tree. I'd sit there and just... As long as Eddie wanted to sit there and talk, I wanted to sit there and listen. I learned more. And I told Eddie, I said, God, it seems like, actually, uh, it seems like yesterday as a kid when I went to Madison Square Garden to see Dr. Jerry and Eddie Graham. And Dr. Jerry with the cigar smoking was the flamboyant one. And it was only when I got in the business that I understand that that the quiet one that was standing behind him was the true genius sure. of the, that tag team and was, you know, for me to finally come there and be, to be around Eddie, I'm there paying homage to him. And I, I said, I, I, you know, I used to go to the garden and I, I was there when I didn't see Bruno win the title, but I was there when he picked up Haystacks Calhoun. That wow. was the thing. Can Bruno Sammartino, the strongest man in the world, pick up 600 pounds of Haystack Calhoun? I was in the garden and saw that. And I used to go up and I said, I went to, you know, I, I used to go up to the garden and watch you. And I dreamed that maybe someday I could be in the business and get a chance to work Madison Square Garden. That was, that is the arena. Any wrestling fan, if you say garden, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a Cincinnati Gardens, there's a Maple Leaf Gardens. But if you just say to a true wrestling fan, the garden they know exactly what you're talking about. You're killing me, JJ. I never got to work it, but uh. <laughs> well, well, here's my here's my story. Now, now I'm in Florida. I'm mainly a manager. Sure, this is the eighty three, eighty four, correct? Yeah, but working some, right? And but not a full time wrestler. And when I did wrestle, I don't feel that I had the the the. the the timing that I did, it was like when you're wrestling every day, it's, you know, if you're a baseball player, it's like you, you know, once you get into the season, you're, that's when your true ability, cause you're doing it every day. You're, you're, and I told Eddie, I said, you know, I, 
dreamed that one day I would be able to come to the garden. I said, and now mainly I'm more of a manager. And he said, so he said it would have meant a lot to you then if you could have worked in the garden. I said, yeah, it really would have. And it kind of a, just a throw in a passing thought. And so Eddie leaves my office. The next day he comes in and he said, um, Monday, April 23rd, this is 1984. He said, you're going to have a plane ticket to fly from Tampa to New York and you're going to work Madison Square Garden. Tito Santana, right? Yep. Wow. And it's like, uh, I'm, uh, I'm just sitting there, pinching myself, is this moment real? And so... Eddie told me that the day before when he left my office, he called Vince Sr. Now, Vince Sr. was at that point, which I don't think we realized how Junior had just taken over with Jim Barnett there to kind of uh, guide him and lead him. And Sr. was home in Florida and terminally ill with lung cancer, which didn't know that that's how bad it was. Right. And Eddie Graham called senior and senior says, Oh, I remember Jimmy. That's what he used to call me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, all those years he was there. Oh, what a nice kid he was. And he said, well, he's here and all working in the office for me. And he said, just talking, he said about the garden and that was one of his dreams. And now he said, you know, I'm more of a manager and that I guess late in my career, I'll never get to work the garden. And so senior said, to Eddie, he said, he will be booked on the next show. We'll fly him up. He'll work the garden and fly him back. And, and Eddie came in and told me that. And that I is said, so cool. I said, can I call Senior and thank him? And he said, yes. And I called Senior and I said, I, this is a, kid, a kid's dream. And I said, I know that. You know, there's expense involved. You're flying me up there just to work the shot. And nobody knows me up there. This is strictly. He said, just stop right there. He said, you're, you're being flown up because we want you here and you're going to work the garden. And we're, I'm just happy that I can make your, your one of your dreams come true. That's an awesome story. Oh, so I went up there and I was, I've got a copy of the, they had a program where they used to put a sheet in there with a lineup for the night. And I was listed down below, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and also appearing in my name with the girls. And they they originally had Tito Santana against one of the Samoans for an intercontinental title match. And they used to tape it because they were they had the Garden Network. Right. So that night they moved me up the card to work with Tito. And I have a copy of that. I mean, I have the tape of them. I, I thought, wow, I'm not working every day. I, the last thing I want to do is embarrass myself. Thank God. Because I I was around when Tito broke in the business in, in Amarillo. So sure. I knew Tito, comfortable with him. And I, I just thought, oh, I, don't, I want to go out there and just be. And they were taping for the Garden Network. And there's Pat Patterson and Gorilla Monsoon doing the commentary. And even though they knew me, they knew their audience didn't know me from Adam. So there wasn't a whole lot that they could talk about. And when I watched the tape, they talked about everything, you know, but me because, you know, they didn't want to, I was there for one shot and, you know, just to work with Tito Santana. And I've got a a photo from the garden that night with Tito that he signed. And I've got a, 
I've got the lineup card and everybody that was there that night has signed it. Sergeant Slaughter was in the main event with Iron Sheik. Oh, Greg I remember Hammer. that match. Yeah, Greg Hammer Valentine was against Bob Backlund. Wow. I took the place of one of the Samoans against Tito. There was a six-man match with Roddy Piper, Paul Orndorff, and Dr. D. David Schultz against Tony Atlas, Rocky Johnson, and Ivan Putski. Wow. Brian Blair was on the card. Uh, it, it, and I had everybody that was there that night sign it. I have it framed with the photo with me and uh, Tito. So that was my one shot in the garden to make my, my dream come true. And You only need one, though. That's the thing. You only need one. And, <laughs> and uh, Vince Sr. passed away about four months later from the lung cancer. And... I called him and, and personally thanked him. And he said, I, I, he said, you know, I'm happy to do this for you. Not knowing that he was terminally ill, ill, ill at the time. And I, I came to find out, and this was right because senior was so sick that Vince jr. Was spreading his wings and Barnett was there to help guide him. And the garden used to be a place that all the other promoters if they wanted to kind of enhance the career of somebody, say like the, the, the Bon Eric kids, they'd get them booked in the garden right. so that you could say, well, yeah, I worked Madison square garden. And I, I've been, I was told and had it reconfirmed that I was the last outside talent, not working the territory. It was added to a garden card. Wow. So that, that is the story. And I'd love to see that picture. That must be something hanging on your wall. Um, yep. I'd be remiss if, uh, I know your time's valuable, so I'm going to move on. Um, I'd be remiss if we had a conversation and we didn't talk about the, the horsemen. Uh, and so you went to work uh, for Jim Crockett Promotions, moved up to Charlotte. You were um, in the office working under Dusty as assistant booker, correct? Yeah, actually, I, I went to the I – I had a chance to go back to the Canadian Maritimes 10 years after I got my break in the business and worked on top. And – they hadn't had TV for a while, and it was a real eye-opener to come back 10 years later. The wrestling audience changes, and they basically, very few people remembered that I worked on top up there and was a champion. And and they they didn't have, Emil Dupre had taken over the, the TV spot, and they gave the guy who was the ring announcer back in the day who was trying to establish the promotion they weren't going to give him the time slot back. They gave him an extra, uh, they gave him an hour of TV on cable, was just starting out in its infancy. So the reality was that only a fraction of the audience that watched broadcast television had subscribed to cable, and that's what we were on. And they, they produced a fabulous show, and I went up there, Eddie Graham and, and Dusty gave me carte blanche to go through all their tape library and 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 I built six shows of from championship of Florida's uh library wow. with their blessing and those six weeks aired before I went up there and opened up and again when you're when you you know you're at a television network that's in its infancy on cable uh it was a harsh lesson that you're you're starting you're starting from the ground floor and I realized that the, the guy who was putting up the money after, I don't know, six weeks, whatever it was, it wasn't much long after that. I said, you know, you're, you're paying me 
and I'm not earning my way and it's not because I don't have good ideas and, and not producing a quality television show. It's just the cable television is in its infancy. And I, I've learned in the business that your success is based on the number of eyeballs that are seeing your product right. and you're not, and you're not there yet. And I said, it would be an injustice for me to stay here and take your guarantee every week. Um, you're better off cutting your losses now because you, you can't make it with just this exposure. So here I am after Eddie and Dusty gave me this grand farewell, gave me all the tapes to go up there. And two months later, I'm calling Dusty to say, Dusty, man, it didn't work out and I need a place to go. And Dusty said, well, he said, you got great timing because I just made my deal to go and be the booker for Jim Crockett. He said, pack your things and drive right to Charlotte. I said, well, do I need to call Jimmy Crockett and some kind? No, he said, I'll make a deal for you. You come to Charlotte. We're back together again. I need your help. So that's what happened. I packed up and went to Charlotte. My first match was with Gene Anderson. Dusty was in the office and, you know, he, I, I could never do what Dusty did. And you asked a question before about bringing your crew in. I realized that the great bookers in the business, the people like Bill Watts, when they would come in to book, they had a nucleus of top guys, three or four top guys that were their guys. And when they would come in to book, these guys would follow in. And I didn't have that nucleus of guys. Did I have the ideas, the fresh ideas, uh, being able to produce a great television show? Yes, but I didn't have that group of guys that were my guys. And I, I, I learned that pretty quick, that that was a huge part of, you know, I learned that when I went to Kansas City, that I didn't, I, I just had to work with what I had there. And it was very humbling. Sure. So you're working for Jim Crockett Promotions. I believe you were managing Tully at the time. And uh, the horsemen just kind of came together uh, kind of on a whim uh, you're all champions and went out and cut an interview at uh, the TBS studios. Uh, and our first guys, the, not to interrupt, but the first guys sure. that I went up there were, were Ron Bass and Black Bart. Right. And then uh, Arn came in from uh, Louisiana. Tully came in and the, the, the horseman thing was just, uh, I actually then expanded and was managing Tully only. And Arn came in and did that classic interview where, you know, he had uh, Tully around him and uh, I think Ole, and, you know, he, he did that interview where he said, take a good look at your screen because never in the history of our business have so few guys dominated the industry. You'd have to look in your history books to the four horsemen in the apocalypse and held up four fingers. And it just was a throwaway line. And sure. the next time he came out there, the fans that were there, Started and that night in the arena, they're yelling for in the front row, the whole front row for horsemen because it became an interactive thing where they were involved. And a couple of weeks went by, and Jimmy Crockett said, What's this four horsemen thing? I crap, I keep hearing about it. I said, Jimmy, <laughs> I said, Why were you? I would pay attention because I said it was something that it wasn't like a creative idea that somebody came up with and said, Let's let's have a bunch of guys come together and call them the four horsemen. I said it was a, iron, a line that Arn threw out there and the fans are the ones that picked up on it. And I said, I would get behind it because it's, it was the fans' idea. And it was. 
and it just grew and grew. And it, I was, as often been the times in my career, I was the right place at the right time to, to be a part of that. Was it challenging? And if so, how did you handle living that horseman lifestyle while also working for the office? Because the other four guys didn't have to, <laughs> didn't have those duties. They could, you know, they could roll in at about, uh, you know, uh, seven o'clock the night of the show. Yeah, and I had to be up and, and either on the road, be doing office stuff, or when I was sure. in Charlotte, I had to be in the office at 10 o'clock in the morning. And then, you know, and when Dusty was ready, he would roll out and I would stay and I shared an office with Gene Anderson. But it's it's like, you know, I you do, you do what you have to do <laughs> and you learn when an opportunity comes along that... The, nobody is guaranteed anything. And you never use the, the logic, oh, you know, well, hey, I, I, I don't have to work all that hard. I earned this. No, no, no. Life isn't, doesn't work that way, especially in the wrestling business. And that you're only going to get out of it what you put into it. And I was grateful that I was there with Dusty, that Dusty had total confidence in me. He would write out the TV show, come in there and throw it on my desk and throw his bag, his Gucci bag over his shoulder and be gone. And Gene would be sitting across the desk from me and I'd look at the TV sheet and I said, oh, he's got so-and-so down here two times. I got to put somebody else in there. And then I had Mike Jackson and George South and they were my guys for TV matches to have the best quality guy. And I, I put a lot, George South came up to me within the last year or two. And he came up to me one day and he said, I, I, I want to thank you. I said, you want to thank me? He said, yes, I want to thank you because I just own my own home wow. and I owe it all to you. And I said, George, I said, you owe me nothing. I said, whatever success you had, you earned. And I counted on you when I needed guys for TV, I knew that you knew what I needed and you, you were there for me. That's why I kept calling you and why I kept calling Mike Jackson. So I said, put that thing out of your mind that I'm, I'm proud that you were able to save your money and buy your own home. And it wasn't because of my doing, you earned everything you got. And that's how I truly felt. Sure. And I've been very blessed my whole career. So, I don't know if you've ever been asked this question, and I, I honestly don't know the answer, but um, when I found out that you were going to be on City Ringside, I, I, I wanted to uh, ask it. Uh, you were the assistant booker, as we've already established. You were also uh, the manager of the Four Horsemen. There were changes throughout the years. You know, Barry Windham would come in, and then Sid would be in, and Lex Luger would be a horseman. Um, since you were the manager of the Horsemen, when they were thinking, I always of, correct you. I was never the manager of the horseman. I was the leader, the leader of the, of the horseman. horseman. I apologize. Since you were the leader of the horseman and also working in the booking office was, did you get, uh, when dusty wanted to make a change, did you, did he go to you and did you have any kind of veto power or input on whether so-and-so would be, a, would become a horseman? Um, mm, I'm, 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 might be asked my opinion but not always what, what, what did happen was dusty because dusty, they used to talk about the dusty finish and like dusty would go over almost every night. And 
it would it would I would be in the heel dressing room, and they would say, his ego is out of control, and we're getting beat every night. All of a sudden, our heat's going to be gone. And he said, you're there in the office with him. Can't you talk to him? And the reality was that I I had a great relationship with Dusty. I was close with his family, with he and Michelle. I watched the boys grow up. But it wasn't the kind of thing where I could go into his office, close the door, and have that kind of a talk to Dusty. Because he was still Dusty, and I was still his assistant, even though we'd been a team for all of those years. What I did do was I would pull Jimmy Crockett aside and I would say, got a problem. I said, I'm here and every night in the dressing room, how the heels are getting beat every night. And there's fear that their heat is all of a sudden going to be gone and the business is going to drop. And it, and we all know that when you lose that momentum, it's very hard to get it back. And I said, I'm hearing all kinds of pressure on the road about Dusty's ego not being check, in check. And he said, thank you for having this conversation with me. I don't, I don't know that there and was anything then, that, what, what, was Jimmy, he, was he able to do anything? Jimmy? Yeah. Jimmy would go in, Jimmy would go in and close the door and he could talk to Dusty on a level and he knew how to have a conversation with Dusty that didn't challenge Dusty's authority or what he was doing. And Jimmy was smart enough that the next night he would invite Rick to come over to his house with him and Myra and have dinner with him, which Rick used to do with a regular, with regularity. And so the following day in the dressing room, he said, God, he said, Jimmy, call me. And asked me to come have dinner at the house with him and Myron. God, I, we used to do that all the time. And it was so good to have that conversation. I feel like a different person. And I feel like it was like I talked to Jimmy. Jimmy talked to Dusty. I don't know how he presented it to Dusty. But Dusty backed off without me having any kind of a comfort. He doesn't even, you know, I'm sure Jimmy didn't go in there and say, that I had had a conversation sure. with him and he, Jimmy then invited Rick to come over to the house and have dinner with him. And now Rick felt he was the man again. He was important to Jimmy. And so I go to the, to the, to the dressing room the next couple of days and it's like the whole atmosphere has changed. Oh, Jimmy invited me over for dinner and God, it's like, everything's going to be all right. And I then would have to do that at, Again, maybe nine months later, because it would kind of like Dusty would get on a thing again where he was beating everybody every night. And none of them ever knew that I would call Jimmy aside and that Jimmy then, without ever mentioning my name, <laughs> would intervene with Dusty, would inter would invite Flair to come over to the house for dinner. And it's uh, to this day, I don't know that, that any of them know. That's all they do now. It's all about yeah. it's all about soothing egos, uh, and um, and yeah, that, that, it was great that uh, that you were able to uh, to have that relationship with Jim Crockett because you know the whole thing could have gotten out of control. We saw what happened in WCW when no, <laughs> when nobody was really able to uh, to to talk to some of these guys, and um, yep. uh, but 
just for those uh, people who might listen to this podcast who who you know weren't fans back in the day with the Horseman and Dusty. Uh, you know, you know, you could say what you will about Dusty's ego and about you know the Horseman and 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 but there was one spot that you guys did every night, and I swear to God. It never got old. I'll probably Google the elbow, it. To the, elbow, the elbow, elbow. He'd line up yeah. the three heels. He'd, he'd li- elbow, 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 elbow. And, and I'm already starting up on the apron. Elbow, elbow. He'd wheel around, give me the elbow, and I'd do the Holly. Yeah. He, he, I think he named it the Holly Gully, <laughs> which I stole Sky Low Low, the midget, where I could turn, get sideways on the second rope. And I'd be like a spider with my arms and legs. I could go back and forth. And some nights I could hold it for <laughs> for eight, ten seconds until I top her to the apron, topple to the floor, I, and then sitting there all dishuffled. I could see it in my mind like it was yesterday. Uh, and it, it got a pop every night. Boom, 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 boom. He'd go back and forth over all their heads. And then they'd all go down. And you'd come up and he'd do the little, you know, uh, uh, shake his, his, his backside and give you the big elbow. You did the holly gully and boom, the place, the place yeah, exploded. You should call it the flip. Flip, flop, and fly. He'd flip, <laughs> flip, boom, boom, boom. Then elbow, elbow, elbow. And by the time he hit the third guy with the elbow, he'd turn around, and there I was. Boom, he'd elbow me. I'd do the holly gully on the second rope to the floor, and Dusty would be doing his strutting around the ring. I got excited. Folks, yeah, if you've never seen it, I, I would suggest you, uh, you you Google it. I'm sure it's out there uh, plenty of times, but it's uh, or on WWE Network. It's great stuff. Hey, but, uh, it, go ahead. Talking about Dusty. I, I knew Dusty on a personal level, got to be very close friends with him and Michelle, saw his kids grow up. And Dusty, you know, for all the criticism that was dropped on him, Dusty was a great personal f- friend. He was an incredible draw in our business. Sure. You know, a lot of them looked at him and they, they, they thought, oh, he doesn't look like that legitimate athlete. Dusty was a legitimate athlete. He played football in college. And he was, though he, you know, he looked like the, the plumber's son, the overweight. Dusty was a legitimate athlete and he could go. And he was one of the great, great attractions in the whole history of our business. And uh, I love the guy and I really miss him. Absolutely. We, yeah. We actually saw each other. Uh, the, uh, it was ironic that there was a big, uh, it's a big fan fest uh, at the uh, Jewish Community Center. Uh, Jody Malenko uh, put on. Uh, for those who may not be familiar with it, the old, uh, sp- the old not sportatorium, the old uh, armory in Tampa uh, became a, became the JCC built new building downtown, and they, this was a fundraiser for a wall that's still being worked on actually for. Uh, yeah, I was there out yeah. at the Jewish Community yeah. Center. Yeah, uh, it's still being worked on. It's going to feature the history of uh, championship wrestling from Florida, and and unfortunately, so many of the names. Is, you know, there were so many huge names that were there that came out that night. I mean, even guys like Roman Reigns and Kofi Kingston from WWE, and and uh, unfortunately, uh, I'm getting ready to go down there, and uh, my wife calls me and said, "Did you, you hear the news?" and you know, I started to started to cry, and and I know it was very emotional. But just how ironic that we're celebrating the history of championship wrestling yep. from Florida with all those people that flew in and all those names, and 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 it, it became happened. a dusty tribute. Yeah, yeah, it, it absolutely did, yep. and uh, it, it was uh, it was very emotional. Um, and uh, you know, I I got on a plane to go down to Tampa, and. And 
I turn my cell phone on, you know, you know, they'll come on and they'll say, well, those of you, you know, if you, if you don't have to get up and get out your bag out of the overhead, you can use your, turn your cell phone on. And my cell phone lit up with text messages and it was bang, bang, bing, 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 bing. And Pedro Morales had been in very poor health. And I thought, oh my God, no, Pedro has, has passed. And when I turned my phone on, it's the last thing in the world that I ever expected that Dusty had passed away that morning. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, and it, the whole, the whole plane emptied and I'm still sitting in my seat trying to process that. And, uh, just wasn't ready for that. I think, I think, I think, I think we're all, we're, we're, I think we're still trying to process it. it, it it's unbelievable. The two thing, common goals on this podcast, uh, common threads, no matter who I'm interviewing, are the what I told you earlier about somebody always tells a lie or an exaggeration to get their big break. Uh, that's like clockwork. And then it, almost everybody to a man, and we've, been, we've had probably 35, 40 guests on thus far in this run, uh, talks about how Dusty Rhodes affected their life in some way, whether it's uh, Tyrus, uh, Brodus Clay, you know, uh, you know, teaching him life lessons or, uh, mm -hmm. you know, a young girl that we interviewed a couple of weeks ago named Allie, who's a impact knockouts champion who got to uh, spend just a couple hours with Dusty in a WWE performance center camp. Uh, she, she couldn't keep, you know, she kept going on about how it changed her life and her, her outlook and, and taught her lessons. And, you know, the guy has just left his mark on, on everybody, no matter, you know, either as a performer, as a, as a booker, as a teacher, as a, a, a you know, like I said, a life coach, it's just unbelievable. Um, yeah, just a I can give you, I can give you two, two names of people who to me were bigger than life that the thought that they, that the day they would come where they would no longer be with us. I mean, it just, I couldn't imagine that they were bigger in life and that's Roddy Piper and Dusty Rhodes. And I was in uh, Miami Marlins uh, Legends of Wrestling uh, suite with Kevin and Kevin Nash. I looked at Kevin and uh, uh, we were doing an event there. I looked at Kevin and his head went down, you know, like, he's, you know, started to get emotional. And and we all looked over and, uh, yeah, he said Roddy passed. And uh, yep. uh, that was uh, that was another one. And I never got a picture with either of them, JJ. I always just thought yeah. I, I could I could do it the next time. And uh uh, so now I take pictures with every, almost everybody. Uh, yeah. qu quick question. I'm gonna let, a few questions. I'm going to let you go. Uh, you've been great with your time. Uh, Arn and Oli, give notice, September 88. Your office, but you're also their leader. Uh, did you know? And if not, were you surprised? And what were your thoughts? Uh, I knew they were going to New York. Oh, you did know? And, yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, they had told me. And I remember on the way back, from Philadelphia Convention Hall that uh, Arn and Tully dropped the tag titles to the Midnight Express. Right. And on the way back, it was a pretty good walk from the ring back to to the one side of the, of the arena where to get back. And I remember Tully saying, he said, James, you realize that it all, it's all over tonight. I said, yeah. Yeah, I do. And I said, we, you know, we had something special that ended tonight. 
And, uh, you know, yeah. And it was like, you know, we had a sold out house and just the realization that, uh, you know, that, that they were going to leave and they went to New York and it wasn't two weeks later. I got a call from, uh, this is like October, November. I get a call from Tully and he says, uh, and that's right after, uh, Crockett had sold the promotion to Ted Turner. Right. And Tully says, calls me and he says, I don't know, uh, you know, how things are working out for you there or what your situation is. He said, um, I, what I will tell you that since we arrived here, there's a lot of people up here saying some very flattering, good things about you. And he said, but they can't call you. You have to call them. Right. If there's any interest. And of course I knew Terry Garvin from Kansas city. I knew him from Amarillo. So I called Terry. Terry says, Oh my God, hold on. Pat's next door. He goes, brings Pat in. I think I'd met Pat one time when he came to visit Terry in Kansas city, put me on speakerphone and they, it was like November and I was going to go up to before Lindsay and I got married, we were living together in Dallas and, and we were going to go up to New York and go shopping uh, for Christmas and arrangements were made. And when I got to, to New York, I stayed at the Marriott Marquis in Times Square and Vince had a car come into the city, pick me up and take me to his home in Greenwich. And the idea was he didn't want me to meet him at the office in case the conversation didn't go anywhere. I wouldn't be put in an awkward position that nobody knew that I was coming there to meet with him. And he, he came from TV, still had his makeup on. He said, I want to get back here as quick as I could and apologize. You had to wait. And we, we, we sat in his uh, formal living room and uh, he basically offered me a job. And he said, I'm, I'm not looking for you to, to have the tights on. I'm looking for you or even to walk off camera as a manager. I'm looking to you for what I'm told is your uh, creative ideas, your attention to detail. And that's what I want for here. And he said, you can go back to Atlanta and tell them that we met and I'm interested in you and use your as leverage to get the best possible deal with them because they had just, Turner had just bought from Crockett. And he said, or I hope that you'll, uh, that you'll consider this just on the basis of this conversation. And I call, I said, let me talk to, Lindsay was with me and I said, the next morning I called him back and he made me a, a very generous offer. And I said, I'm, I'm going to take your deal. Went back and gave notice and started in February and uh, was there for almost eight years. I was going to get into that and also your time in WCW, but you've been so generous with your time. How about uh, let's uh, trying to play let's make a deal here. Could I have you back in maybe a month or so and we could start just talk about the your experiences in WWE and then the end of WCW? Yeah, I would love to. I don't want to wear out my welcome with your your listeners. Uh, I'm I'm a storyteller and I I start telling stories and it's It's been uh, great, but I feel like, you know, you've, you've been so uh value, you've been so generous with your time that I'd I'd love to get some of the, you know, cuz you know, that was the Monday Night War. That was, uh, 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 you yep. know, the uh, you know. then at some point you went to WCW and we all know, you know, I'm, uh, I may know a lot, not a lot about a lot, but uh, I know a lot about that because I lived it. So, uh, you know, the end of WCW and Eric and then Vince Russo and then Bill Bush and, 
and the guy's threatening to walk out and all that. And I'd love to get uh, your pers- yeah. perspective on that. Uh, probably not going to be as fun of a conversation as, uh, you know, talking about you know, your career, going to Japan, going to Madison Square Garden and all that fun stuff. But if we can get you back uh, to talk about that for about, you know, 40 minutes, maybe down the road, that'd be great. Yeah, I'd love to come back and do it. I, I, I've i been so thankful. And I with every interview, when it's all over, I don't, I, I make a point of thanking the fans for the, everything I have. I, I owe to the fans. Uh, I was never the biggest, never the best. Nobody wanted it more than I did or was willing to work harder than I was, but that doesn't guarantee you success. The fans either are the ultimate ones to decide whether they want to buy a ticket to see you or not. And so uh, I look back sometimes and I just pinch myself that here I am at the, after half a century and I'm wearing two Hall of Fame rings. And and uh, like I say, I'm the luckiest guy in the, in the world and I could talk wrestling all night. So I would love to come back and... Uh, and join you continue our conversation. There's a lot more that we could talk about and uh, glad that you were generous enough to uh, give us this much time to, to uh, talk. It's an honor. And you may not have been the biggest or the best JJ. I, I'm not saying that you said it, but you were the hungriest and you are the humblest. So uh, well, God, thank you. God, God bless you, man. And uh, uh, you have a good week and uh, uh, we'll keep in touch and we'll bring you back and Go in-depth in, uh, into WCW and WWE and the Monday Night Wars and all that exciting stuff. I look forward to it. Thank you very much. want to thank JJ again. Uh, so generous with his time and, and such a really a humble guy. Uh, it just, you know, it, it amazes me that a guy like JJ Dillon's there at WrestleCon marking out for a guy like Bill Watts when there's, you know, thousands of fans that paid tons of money to Mark out for J.J. Dillon. Uh, sometimes I don't think he understands uh, his place in in the business. Uh, but uh, class act, and uh, we look forward to having him back. We'll go in-depth next time in the future here about his time behind the scenes in WWE and also behind the scenes in WCW. He was there the last five and a half years, I believe, uh, during the Eric Bischoff period and the Vince Russo period during the infamous Bill Bush period where the radicals walked out. Uh, Benoit dropped the world title that he had just won and they walked out and went to WWE. And uh, then the end, the end of the road and Vince Vince buying the company. So I'd like to get his input on that. And so we look forward to doing that. And if you have any questions about any of that for JJ in the future, uh, hit us up on Twitter at David Penzer or at Penzer ringside. Uh, I will take notes. And so when we do have JJ back, uh, we could ask him your questions about his time behind the scenes in WWE and in WCW, but uh, lots of great stories and lots of great insight from uh, one of the best, uh, one of the humblest in the business. And I thank JJ Dillon. I want to thank you guys too uh, for tuning in. Don't forget, we're on all platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, and all the other platforms. You can check us out, City Ringside, every Monday morning. Uh, We drop another episode, and we thank you for your support. If you have not already, please feel free to subscribe. Tell your friends and neighbors, and hey, if uh, they let you leave a review, we'd love to hear the good or the bad, what you think of this podcast. Until next time, I'm David Penzer, and I'm still sitting ringside. Follow David Penzer on Twitter at David Penzer. Also, make sure to follow the show on Twitter at Penzer Ringside. 
You've been sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. This is an Ian Beckles flavor in your ear quick fix on Radio Influence. Your boy Zuckerberg's going through some stuff with Facebook, and I like Mark Zuckerberg in a weird way. I think he's an odd cat, but I kind of like him. People are asking for Facebook to be fined for all the things they're going through. First of all, they didn't break any laws, by the way. And if we find Facebook, who's the money going to? Who'd the money go to? The users aren't the ones complaining. I don't even know who's the ones complaining. Now, the Senate was out there asking Mr. Zuckerberg some questions, and you want to talk about ignorant? I mean, some of these old cats. One guy asked Mark Zuckerberg, he goes, well, if you don't charge for Facebook, how do you make money? Uh, it would have to be advertising money, wouldn't it? And uh, the guy was shocked when he heard that. So I don't know what's going to happen to Mark Zuckerberg, probably nothing. And if Facebook gets affected, it'll probably create something else and probably make billions of more money somewhere else as well. You can find Ian Beckles' Flavor in Your Ear on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and RadioInfluence.com.